Welcome back to Canada's Young Leaders, a podcast exploring bold ideas for our country's future. This is the climate season, where we'll be speaking with young environmental leaders about the roles of governments, corporations, and individuals in combating climate change. We'll also look at the COVID-19 pandemic and the opportunity it presents to build back better. This season, we hope to educate both our listeners and ourselves about the biggest issue our species has ever faced, the battle to save planet Earth. Welcome back, everybody, to our final interview on Canada's Young Leaders. Today, we are talking about hope, reasons to be hopeful for the future. We are here with Eddie Perez, who is an international climate diplomacy manager at Climate Action Network Canada. Eddie has also worked for the Climate Reality Project and at the IPCC Secretariat in Geneva. Suffice it to say, Eddie is a climate guy. Eddie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Nick, and hi, James. Uh, Eddie, we're so happy uh, you're on the show and and so grateful that you've agreed to be our, the final guest on this season. And we, if I just start you off by just t- telling tell our, our listeners about uh, Eddie Perez, how do you come to the climate uh, issue, um, you know, generally and and to the organization uh, that you're part of more specifically. First, thanks a lot for the invitation. Before uh, joining the climate movement, uh, I had the honor to work with the NDP and be an advancer for Tom at some of the events where you were a candidate, James. So uh, that was an exciting time in another moment in my life. Glorious. (laughs) I think before that, I did a trip. I went uh, from Canada to Chile by bus, and I wanted to uh, speak about climate action in the context of uh, North, Center, and South America. And it was it was a very important moment for me because uh, as a as a kid who was born in Colombia but grew up in Canada, um, I always wanted to understand my sense of identity. And I think that trip helped me combine identity inequality and climate in a way that i that that i wasn't able to do it in all the other working experience that i had and so when i came back from that trip i started working with the ndp but when the election ended uh i decided to start my masters um at the international uh in uh international research institute of quebec ENRS, and things started to roll out so while i was uh beginning my masters climate reality Canada asked me if I wanted to join their team part-time and they and the climate reality project asked me if I wanted to represent the organization at the UN uh, at a subsidiary conference in Bonn and while I was there I met Climate Action Network uh, and I also met the IPCC and as a master's student in 2016 I had to uh, look for opportunities to apply my education through experience, through an internship or a job. And, um, and the IPCC offered me to come to Geneva five months, work there. And it, 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 it was an opportunity to really understand the climate regime. And through that experience, uh, then um, Climate Action Network Canada then asked me to join their team afterwards um, as the international policy lead. And I'm here three years later, two years and 11 months later, uh, as the International Climate Dip- uh, Diplomacy Manager. 
Now you are here on Canada's Young Leaders, <laughs> which is really who would have imagined? Yeah, that journey would have led you here. You made it, Eddie. We we wanted to finish this season on a positive note. Climate change is is such a scary issue, and I think that a lot of us uh, feel in many ways pessimistic about our chances at actually surviving this uh, in, in a way that is manageable. But that's not what we're going to talk about today. Today, we're going to be talking about some reasons to be hopeful for the future. We're going to split our episode into three sections. And the first section that we'd like to talk to you about is the concrete innovations and progress that have really, you know, sparked in the last few years and, you know, are on a positive trajectory. The Paris Climate Accord was signed five years ago. Can you tell us tell us a bit about what has happened since the signing uh, of that accord and you know how it can give us some hope for the future? Before going concretely into that answer, I, I want to say that we have to recognize that there has never been a moment in the history of climate action and the climate regime where equity, the sense of climate equity hasn't been so important. And, you know, I think the other part of this is that we're fighting. We're fighting for not only a zero carbon future, but a much more equitable zero carbon society. And that means a lot, a big deal, because, you know, we fight for the things that we love. We fight for the things that matter to us. We fight for um, a space to belong. And the Paris Agreement in itself is a tool. It's not an objective. It's a tool of cooperation. It's a tool that helps us increase ambition. It's, it's a tool that, that only allows us to recognize the baseline of the kind of action that we need and sets a goal. And the goal is we need to limit global warming to two degrees and make every possible effort to limit it to 1.5. And Christiana Figueres, who's the UNFCCC executive secretary at that time, she said a very compelling quote, which is, today, we have everything in our power, the capital, the technology, the policies, we have the science. And, and I would add to that quote that we, we've, we have also learned very painfully that we have to cut emissions by half and that by 2030, if we don't do it in an inclusive manner, we won't be able to achieve that goal. And so this fifth anniversary of the Paris Agreement comes with a realization. And that realization is that there are two sides of this story that we must understand. The first one is that we need to continue implementing the Paris Agreement. And that means enhancing what is called the ambition cycle, which is just making sure that our domestic pledges uh, can help us close the gap. Then there's the other, more difficult side, which is the uh, how do we make sure that there are concrete transformation in high-emitting sectors that we need to transition to help us achieve the healthier and zero-carbon future we all want. And 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 I think what has happened over the past over the past five years, and and you know we'll go further into details, but. It is the realization that we need to connect both dots and that this is not something that belongs just to governments, that civil society, the private sector, youth, women, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, even courts, the legal system, everyone has a role to play here. That even though, you know, um, 
we have not advanced as fast as we could. Up until today, in this decade, we have all the means we can use in order to do those kind of transitions. On this show, we, we've heard um, some of those themes already, the, that it's not just about reducing carbon uh, emissions, it's about how we do it. And that, that sense of inclusiveness that you're speaking about is so palpable. Um, you know, we, we, we had uh, James Harper on the show uh, last week who, who talked about the Indigenous community's role, uh, a primary role in this very effort and how to engage the, you know, broadly defined Indigenous community to be leaders uh, in, in this area, amongst other leaders, for sure. But maybe, Eddie, you could talk a little bit for us now about sector transformations. You mentioned some specific tangible change that we're seeing. Can you maybe speak to the energy sector, both on the production and distribution side, uh, maybe speak about maybe manufacturing and some other sectors do you think are ripe for transformations, including some that maybe have already transpired? Let me just on this on the on the trans on the specific sectoral ones. Uh, maybe we could distinguish between those who are leading and those that require a little bit more work. So I think I would begin by the transportation, the the, the transport sector. Transport is not necessarily my area of expertise, but I've been following this very closely because my colleagues have been working so hard to make great progress on this. And 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 we have we have looked we have uh, seen some really big shift happening in the transport sector uh, over the past year. Battery prices just just right there, which were above one thousand one hundred per kilowatt hour. $1,100 per kilowatt hour in 2010. The, in, in just a decade, they have fallen 87% in real terms. So, so that in 2019, it, we're actually reaching $156 per kilowatt hour. And you know the studies from the International Energy Agency are saying that by 2023, the average price is going to close to $100 per kilowatt per hour. So this is this is such a transformational sector. Like, let me just give you another example. Only about 17,000 uh, electric cars were on the world roads in 2010. You know how many cars are there that are electric in 2019? 7.2 million. Awesome. Whoa! So that is that is you know that is a very specific sector where we're looking at another uh, uh, you know a big shift. And here in Canada, we have a couple of leaders. You know, we have Quebec. Quebec announced uh, that it it wants to you know that that the, the internal combustion engine vehicles would will not be sold in the province as of twenty thirty five, and it was a it was a signal. You know. It might not be the most ambitious policy when we look at the different options that are there, but the fact that they changed the date actually pushes Canada to reduce, uh, to think about reducing their date and changing it so that they can be aligned to Quebec. The same thing that California is doing in other areas. So, you know, that, that's, that is a very, very concrete example of uh, something that is happening. You, you, you're mentioning, for example, other sectors, such as the energy sector. I think it's fair to say that in terms of energy, the conversation is actually moving in, in two different di directions. First, on the, you know, there is a great recognition that on the demand side, there are policies that we need to tackle. 
We're seeing, for example, the fact that renewable energy is increasing at, at historic levels. Um, there are numbers that came out on November 30th, uh, 2020, that show that uh, the demand um, for, for renewable energy is going to increase and surpass the demand for um, uh, uh, energy coming from the fossil fuels. But there is one problem right there that we still need to tackle, which is already an area that is being led by other actors, not governments, but other actors such as cities uh, and civil society, which is the production side. There is going to be a report coming out, the production gap report, uh, that actually says that we need to reduce by 6% per year uh, uh, the production of oil and gas and coal all together in order to have a consistent 1.5 pathways. And then, however, at this moment, countries are still planning and projecting an average increase of 2% by 2030. The progress on this side is not coming from governments. It is coming from civil society. It is coming from, from small, like, you know, countries like Costa Rica. And, and there are new initiatives, such as the Non-Proliferation Treaty, which is an initiative that aims to, you know, engage a discussion about treaties uh, to stop the expansion of the fossil fuel industry. And there is one key element here, which is that we need to move forward towards um, a, a 2050 net zero future. We have seen a couple of oil and gas companies around the world show that they want to get into a traje trajectory of 1.5 scenarios. And now what's missing is the details. So I think, I think from us, from us, the, the, those working on the, on, you know, on, on the uh, activist side, our work is to push so that um, everyone is really aligned to a net zero future with a 1.5 degrees compatible pathway. Yeah, oh, 1.5 would be incredible. I personally, I'm, I'm leaning more towards uh, thinking that our objective should be, you know, keeping, you know, it, it below an increase uh, of two degrees. I want to ask you just to kind of finish off this first section of the interview, Eddie, about voting. We have seen, you know, in the past year, for example, you know, back in 2019, we saw that uh, about two thirds of voters uh, cast their ballot for a party with a progressive and ambitious climate platform. In the United States, you know, Joe Biden, who was the moderate candidate, uh, has actually been pushed uh, pretty heavily on climate, largely by youth who say, we will only vote for you if you show us an ambitious climate plan. And that has happened, I would say. Eddie, can you talk to us a bit about the, the trend of voting towards parties and leaders with ambitious climate platforms? For sure. Yeah, you, you, you mentioned a great deal of what we've, we've been working on and we've seen happening across different countries. What, uh, be it in Canada, the, the US or the European Union, climate is becoming a ballot issue. And this is, for, for Canada, this is new. For a number of years, climate was a very politicized issue. It was, it was seen as a divisive issue. And political parties used to ignore, they don't used to do campaigns on climate. That changed. And that changed for many reasons. And one of them is because we're feeling the impacts of the climate crisis and they need to, uh, to have a concerted approach that not only addresses 
you know, um, you know the, the, the demands for a specific group, but we're actually feeling cr- the climate crisis impacting financial institutions, supply chains, trade partners, uh, migration pathways. We're seeing climate impacting agriculture. We're seeing climate impacting banking. We're seeing climate impacting nature. And we're, we're recognizing that uh, climate action is all about co-benefits. The more we do to protect our environment, the more we do to protect people, the more we do to protect planet, the more co-benefits there are uh, in terms of economic prosperity, sustainability, and, and social justice. So at this moment, and this is this is becoming, you know, this is going beyond just uh, elections, is actually becoming a foreign policy issue. The greater recognition that Climate action requires coordinated, wholesome society responsive because that is the only way to stern the, uh, the, the response to, the, to, to this climate crisis. We've got to take a short break. We're going to be right back with Eddie Perez. Hello, my darling woke people. Welcome to our final Your Voice segment. Are you sad about it? Because I am. I love talking. This week, we're talking about hope and asked what gives you hope for the future of our planet. We received a bunch of replies on this one, and I would like to share a few of them with you now. Our good friend Kieran Lenz is hopeful about the exponential advancement of technology. Claire McPollin is hopeful because she sees people extending their imaginations and energy beyond what we thought was possible. Jeremy Kane gets hope from AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and the Green New Deal, while Claire Singleton is pumped about Joe Biden. I mean, who isn't? Bye, Trump. See you never. And funnily enough, my mother, Jane Wheeler, as well as her brother, our Uncle Andrew, and our cousin Emily, all say that they've placed their hopes in the younger generation. And they're right. It's up to us. No pressure. (laughs) Thank you, everyone, once again for tuning in. Really means a lot. This is Jenna Wheeler-Hughes signing off. It's been an absolute pleasure. Stay safe out there. Welcome back, everyone, to Canada's Young Leaders. We're absolutely thrilled to have Eddie Perez with us on the show today. Before we get back into that interview, I'd just like to do a shout out to my amazing daughter, uh, Jenna Wheeler-Hughes, who you've just heard uh, on the interlude. Uh, she's uh, an amazing uh, young performer and uh, actress uh, and so many other things, singer, dancer, etc. But she's also a Canada Young Leaders star. And uh, just want to thank her for everything she's done for us this season. Eddie, we want to talk in the second half uh, of the interview about ideological progress. Super interesting term. The whole idea that we've evolved ideologically on the climate issues. And I'd love to hear you uh, first talk about how we might have evolved in terms of our thinking about what urgency means. Because there is nothing more urgent than of the call of climate it's it's about saving our humanity but you know and yet it, it just feels like it's, it's lugubrious it's so slow uh in terms of getting um real traction politically what are your views on this yeah so i think the first thing that i would say is it is difficult 
And I, I, I always feel like the climate crisis is like a grieving process. We feel that we've, we're losing every day something, you know, um, here in Canada, geographic, geographically, we're a little bit more privileged. But when you go to the Bahamas or, you know, small island states, when you go to countries such as those that are part of the least developed countries group, they are feeling the climate crisis in, in a very different way, which is, it is not just climate, it's, it's everything. It's economic development, is the way in which... Um, they do agriculture, the way in which governance is, is made. And so, and so I think, you know, the, there, there, there has been a redefinition of, of urgency in, in many ways. And the first one is there is greater awareness that, uh, that uh, if we don't do what we must do at an urgent scale, uh, the cost of inaction is going to be greater. And this is not just coming from governments and scientists, the I would say that you know, and we 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 saw it last year. The greatest communicators of the climate crisis are actually young people. They have been the ones on the fro- uh, forefront of the communication space, telling us, pushing us uh, to do more. And it's not even my generation; it's the younger ones that that are feeling an agonizing feeling of of despair but are using that as a way to recreate an an active engagement uh and going to the streets and mobilizing their schools and in that sense i think there is clearly a redefinition of how do we speak about climate leadership i really want to to you know kind of dive into this this topic of youth and in particular social media how youth is not only so much more exposed to this issue than they would be if we didn't have social media as a tool to spread this information but also that it's used as a uh, mobilization tactic or um, or device to actually get people out onto the streets demanding uh, from their leaders that uh, that we that we change the way that we are currently living, but I, <laughs> I know that's a rabbit hole that we don't have time for. Uh, Eddie, I want to talk about building hope through resistance. You know, before uh, before the show, you and I were kind of talking about uh, what this episode would look like, and you mentioned to me that you wanted to talk about this idea of building hope through resistance. Can you tell me and our listeners what that means? So, I think the first thing that I would say is our biggest enemy at this moment is time. You know, we have a couple of years to really make sure that we create pathways that lead us towards limiting global temperature to 1.5 or at least to levels that are safe for humanity and for biodiversity. You know, hope through resistance means making sure that we fight for what we must do in every act that we do collectively together in order to achieve that goal. I, I just want to give you one example. The, the European Union had an objective, uh, an emission target of 40% uh, percent below 1990 uh, levels, um, which was until recently, um, a, a they, what governments used to say, an ambitious uh, objective. 
young people use social media. They use all possible means. They went to the streets. And you know what? Today, the European Union is actually moving from a, from a floor of 55% reductions below 1990 levels towards potentially 60% reductions. Uh, and this is something that is being negotiated at the European Commission as we speak. So you see that there, there has been a great mobilization uh, from young people to do that. And there is a recognition that is because of their leadership that this is happening. Let me give you another one. At this moment, there is another emerging trend happening, which is a whole society approach on net zero. We saw what happened early in September when China and the EU committed to net zero. But that, you know, that, that mobilization that did not start with China and the EU, it started with cities. It started with regions. It, it started with business. There is a coalition called the Race to Zero Coalition, which is mobilizing leading net zero initiative. That is representing about 452 cities, 22 regions, 1,101 business, 45 of the biggest investors, and even universities, some of them here in Quebec. And they are uh, actors that are joining, uh, are in 120 countries, uh, representing over 90, uh, 25% of global CO2 emissions and over 50% of GDP. And so, my, you know, the, my, my, the way I understand hope through resistance is that there is no time to give up. And if, if you know, we know that 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 you know the the, the climate will continue to warm because we've already emitted a lot of greenhouse gas emissions. So we have to fight to limit it to the po the most possible safe. Uh, uh, levels so that we can create a better future for future generations. That is hope through resistance. Yeah, I love that idea of resistance. And yet, you know, as as the pool of us who are fighting for a better climate and to save our way of life uh, grows, it's funny, it's almost like resistance against an, a majority that's increasing. So there's almost like there's a minority out there that are sustaining the status quo. And I guess, uh, you know, I, I can't help but think of Trans-Canada Pipeline, the oil industry that continues to, you know, offer jobs, communities, uh, the kind of wealth that is necessary to maintain a way of life. And, and I, I wonder in, in that uh, vernacular of hope through resistance, whether there's more resistance that we need uh, in parts of the country, I'm thinking out West in particular, where understandably the, the, the difficulty of moving over the mountain is is perhaps harder than it is in Quebec, where we all live, which is uh, electricity focused and, and concentrated. What do we do to make that a hopeful uh, scenario and narrative as well? Yeah, so I think we're, we're, we're already talking about mostly political dynamics, because because I think, you know, it's fair to say that the the fact that we're so continue to be so dependent on the oil and gas industry. There's a lot of political background behind it. And the, 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 the key example for that is that you saw that in Quebec, even though we have hydroelectricity here, uh, the government still decided not to present a very ambitious climate plan, disregarding of the transportation announcement. So it's not about necessarily the tools, but mostly about the belief that we could do more. In terms of, of you know, the Canada oil and sand and how do we deal with that industry, 
I think that we've avoided that discussion for for um, the longest time. I think when the P, the, the Pan Canadian framework on climate change and growth was created, uh, while the majority of sectors they were supposed to reduce their emissions. The oil and gas sector was the only one that would continue to increase. Uh, and, and, and that was a political decision. It was a political decision that, that, that was negotiated with the oil and gas industry. This is a very powerful industry. And I think my response to that is that we need to think about just transition. We need to speak about prevent this transition. The less we do right now, because we fear that one industry and their uh, top executive might be pissed off, the harder is going. The harder is going to be uh, to transition workers into into um, and their communities into a much more prosperous uh, future. The harder is going to be to provide jobs and to provide uh, social safety nets. Uh, for these workers, because it's going to be much more ex, um, expensive, and so I think right here, the, the the our allies in these moments are workers and the unions and those who are really fighting to keep up um, good jobs. But I, I think maybe just to give you another uh, a part of that response, because high emitting sectors they're also nourished by uh, the fact that. Only 10% of the planet's population is responsible for near, nearly 50% of the emissions. And that, you know, I, I, think, I think there is also a discussion that we need to have about the difference between being a consumer and being a citizen. I actually believe that young people, they, with, with the way in which they're asking for a safer future, they're helping us to reshape how we think about being a citizen today, not a consumer a citizen that cares about the environment in the choices in which we um, um, you know, buy things, uh, create things, invest. Um, when we buy a house, we want to have a, a, a house that, that had, you know, is able to retrofit. And I feel that, that, that we, as we move forward, this wholesome approach it also takes into consideration this notion of citizenship. Uh, and, and, and not just a consumer. And so I feel that, that there are a couple of discussions right there, first on just transition, but also on how we build societies where we feel responsible for the future we want to build. 100%. This is actually a perfect transition to our final topic, which is looking ahead. And we haven't really talked much about COVID, but we have talked about you know this opportunity to transform our societies. And you know, we're at a moment in time where, you know, there has never been a better moment to make radical transformations, to stop, you know, subsidizing the oil and gas sector. Why are we not seeing uh, some of these kind of radical moves that we know need to happen? But more importantly, Eddie, I'm hoping you can just talk broadly about this idea of building back better, right? We've, we've heard this first from Joe Biden, but from, you know, all, all kinds of other politicians, can you talk to us about the opportunity that COVID presents to build back better? Yeah, I think I, that has become like um, a trend, right? Build back better is actually their website. Their website is buildbackbetter.org. It's interesting. And so it, it definitely looks like the this strategy, which in part was led by the United Nations Secretary General, uh, paid off and, and build back better uh, has become... Um, a, a much more important framework that is informing all the other 
policy areas. But it, I, I don't think it's just Build Back Better. I think it's Build Back Greener. And and in that sense, I feel that uh, that there is a recognition, uh, and I cover G7 and G20 negotiations, there is a recognition of the importance of making sure that approaches of um, uh, of the recovery in Canada and within G20 countries are, first of all, intersectional. So they, they link not only uh, climate-related issues, but also health, security, bring together uh, development into a, a, an approach that allows to respond to all of these problems at the same time. Uh, the other part of it is that um, you know, we've already seen some movements. We saw China announcing carbon neutrality. The United, uh, the European Union, Canada has already said that it would. Um, and 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 I think we need to have a discussion about equity, equity in the context of carbon neutrality, because um, carbon neutrality without proper safeguards won't contribute to restore the climate and restore biodiversity. So we need to also have a discussion about uh, how do we achieve carbon neutrality by 2050 in an equitable way without co-opting without co um, this policy as a way to expand those, you know, the, the, the oil and gas sector and all the other sectors. That's the danger, right? That, that word net is, you know, is, is one offsets the other to get to zero. And who benefits potentially the very uh, or, or companies that are, are enriching themselves right now through destruction of our environment? And I, if that's my question, but we only we have very little time left. And, and Nicholas will ask you the last question in a second. But I got to ask, in that very context, would you, could you, has, ha, is it possible, uh, as we've done with coal, to put an end date on oil extraction? Should we be doing that? 2030, 2035? Is, is, that, is that too ambitious? Is that, would that, would people just freak out about that? Uh, because if we don't have a date, you know, because of that language of net, it'll never stop. So I, I, I think, I think that there are ways to, you, you, you have to look at it from both the demand side and the production side. And also you you have to look at it from uh, the perspective of rich producer countries against uh, poor producing countries. And so in this regard, you have, you know, you can't, you, we can't compare Canada with Ecuador or Nigeria. We can't compare OPEC countries with the United States. So I feel that the same way we've talked about phasing out coal in a just manner, we need to also, also think about um, uh, phasing out fossil fuels and the oil and gas expansion in a way that that actually works for uh, workers and community, but that also stops the production of, um, of uh, the oil and gas in the future. So you could say, like I, I, I mentioned earlier, that the production GATT report said that global fossil fuel production would have to decline by 6% per year to follow a 1.5 consistent pathway until 2030 and by 2% per year to follow a two uh, degrees consistent pathways. So yes, you could, you, you, you know, we, we know that we need to cut the production by 6%. Uh, that said, we can't do it 
um, in a in a in a similar way in all countries because because we know that that you know uh, a country like Canada has much more resources to help communities uh, than than countries in Africa and in Latin America. So so I think that the key element here is how do we do it in an equitable manner, but how do we do it in a responsible manner, both from a policy perspective, but also from my from my workers policy led perspective, Eddie. To close out this interview and to close out Canada's young leaders, I want to ask you a very simple question. Do you think we can do this? Oh, I think we can do this. I think, I think that, that not only we could do this, but we have the scientific means to um, really shape up our creative minds and come together to do this. There's no other time in history where the most important element that that helps us belong to this community at this moment during COVID-19, there hasn't been any other time in history where the climate crisis hasn't been one that shapes our identity. And so if we don't use that moment to make it something that we could use to build back better, I don't know where when we can. I was hoping to get some hope from this uh, this conversation and I absolutely have... I uh, I think that it is still going to be uh, the 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 battle of our generation, the battle of our lives. But I I agree, we we can do this. We just have to do it together. Eddie Perez, thank you so much for joining us on Canada's Young Leaders. It has been a sincere pleasure speaking to you today, and we really appreciate uh, the time that you've given us. Thank you so much for the opportunity, James and Nick. Eddie, we expect you to be the Minister of the Environment within the next eight years. I just want to say that publicly and on air. Do not let us down. Whoa. Uh, we'll talk about that in another interview. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks, we've got a little outro coming out uh, for you next week, but this is the final interview. Eddie, thank you again. Dad, that's it. Cheers, everybody. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Canada's Young Leaders. If you like the show, leave us a rating and review on Stitcher and Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. It's the best way for the show to grow. Special thanks to Cam Duffin and his band Lost Cousins for our theme music, to Meredith Lindsay for our logo, and to Tom Zalatni for producing our show. You're the best, Tom. Canada's Young Leaders is a proud member of the Upford Network. You can find out about all the great shows on our network at upfordnetwork.com. I'm Tefra Jemian, the producer and host of the Yeah Podcast, a young adult lit review podcast focusing on amplifying the diverse voices in YA literature. Join us as we dig into the world of young adult books, reviewing new releases, revisiting old classics, and exploring what YA lit can teach us at any age. Discover the world of YA Lit through exclusive author interviews, book reviews, genre smackdowns, and more. The Yeah Podcast, available through the Upward Network on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and wherever else you find your podcasts. This is our book club, and you're invited. Yeah! Hello, my name is Stefan, and please join me every week for my podcast, Some Good Friends, a show where I talk to some good friends of mine. And I think you're going to like them just as much as I do, because they're crazy, and they're wacky, and they're hilarious, and they're definitely real people and not characters made up just for the sake of comedy. It comes out every Monday, early in the morning.